Welcome to the inaugural edition of Henry Conversations. I am your host, Michael Watson. I have the privilege of directing the Paul Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics at Calvin University. My conversation partner today is my colleague, James R. Skillen, or Jamie Skillen, Associate Professor of Environmental Studies and the Director of one of Calvin's treasures, the Calvin Ecosystem Preserve and Natural Garden. He is the author of several articles in a 2009 book entitled The Nation's Largest Landlord, the Bureau of Land Management in the American West. And just this last month, a book published by Oxford University Press that we'll be talking about today, among other things, This Land is My Land, Rebellion in the West. Jamie, thanks for joining me for the first Henry Conversation. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be on the first one. One of the things I enjoyed about the book is how it drew from so many different disciplines and still came across as a coherent narrative. So we have elements of law, public policy, constitutional interpretation, history, environmental science, and there's a normative vibe that lies just below the surface for much of the book, but pops up uh, here and there. How would you describe that part of the book, the disciplinary approach that you, you took, and then maybe a little bit of your own background as to how you got to this place in terms of being a professor environmental science and being able to draw from all these different types of thinking to write this book? When I started the book, I I started with more with a set of questions and not necessarily with a particular discipline in mind. And I draw primarily on history and law. But then, as you mentioned, the book is drawing on political science, religious studies, and a number of other areas. And what I basically found is that in order to answer the questions I had, no one of these disciplines provided what I needed. And it has both to do with, I think, the complexity of the issues, but it's also that what I was trying to write about behind these issues is the phenomenon of political coalitions Mm -hmm. in the United States and how they drive our politics. And what really helps by taking up different disciplines is it did ensure that I got different perspectives or different angles on what holds these together. So for some of the people I write about in the book, it's important to recognize that, yes, there's an ideological driver for them or a religious driver, but to simply focus on that would miss the real specific economic challenges they face, the environmental challenges they face, So I just found I had to draw on these different sources in order to feel like I was doing any justice to the people involved. And that comes down to the reality that we as people don't live in disciplinary realities. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are whole people. And so it would make sense that we would need those different perspectives. My own background, I followed my interests through education. So I have an undergraduate degree in environmental science a master's degree in theology, and then a PhD in natural resources. And so the downside of that is that I don't have real depth in disciplinary training. The upside is I feel free to wander where I think I I need the help. Yeah, I don't know if that's a downside or or not. And am, am I right in thinking that you've actually not just studied some of these things that you, at one point in your life, you worked in the Forest Service or for the National Park Service, in between one of those degrees, would that be right? Correct, so I worked for two seasons for the U.S. Forest Service in Southern Colorado. And I actually took that job because I would consider myself an environmentalist. I was really troubled by clear cutting. This was in the 1990s. And I found an opportunity to work for the Forest Service and I thought, what better way to try to understand these issues not just from the distance of the classroom I'd been in, but what would it look like to be on the ground and work with the people who are both fighting those timber sales, but also the people in the Forest Service who are trying to set them up in ways that produce economic benefit, but also that did protect the environment. So I found that enormously helpful. And I would say that throughout my research and writing, Uh, That experience is a touchstone because I write about federal lands, and I've always then found it helpful 
to go back to federal land managers mm-hmm. and to have them help ground truth some of the things I'm working on. Not that I'm asking for assurance that they agree with me, but that they would at least find that I'm not completely misrepresenting sure. the, the realities of their work. Well, and I, I have to confess, I have sometimes had the, uh, the sin of envy because in your now prof- professorial career, you are able to take trips with students and, and you're able to teach and conduct your research while visiting some of these great places. Can you say a little bit about that? I can, and we're going to do one of those trips together, I would hope. I hope so, too. Yeah, in the Sierra. I think that one of the things that brings me enormous joy is taking students to the places I study. And the reason why it's so powerful and so important is that when I teach about environmental issues, particularly environmental controversies, we all want there to be simple solutions. Mm -hmm. And when we find that there isn't a simple solution, it can be hugely discouraging. And I find that in the classroom, when I work with students on something like water rights, uh, after about 30 minutes, their eyes glaze over because they can't see a way forward. Mm. And, And there is a tendency to just give up. The power of the field course, and I teach courses in usually around Oregon, California, Nevada. The power of the field course is that when we're actually talking to a rancher, who depends on an interpretation of water rights, or we're talking to someone from the Audubon Society concerned about migratory birds, you can't give up. These aren't abstract problems. These are real people. And so I think that the power for students is they end up being drawn into the issues and it holds their attention so that they can, they actually have the patience to think through the problems in more of their full complexity. Speaking of complexity, I'm going to ask you to do something impossible, not impossible, but difficult. If I were to try and explain to my mom who's in her seventies and doesn't read academic books, what the main gist of of this book is, this land is is my land. What are you up to in this book? What's the argument? What kind of territory are you trying to, no pun intended, are you trying to cover? So people listening to this get a sense of what the book's about. I write in the book that the idea for it uh, came in 2014. And in April of that year, there was an armed standoff near Bunkerville, Nevada, between a rancher and a variety of militiamen and federal law enforcement. And it seemed just utterly bizarre. The rancher had been grazing livestock illegally. The federal government had come to take his cattle and these independent militiamen defended him. What's more, the federal government stood down, and that rancher's cattle are still grazing illegally on Mm -hmm. federal lands. And as that was going on, I received a call from a reporter who is British, was living in New York City and writing for Reuters. And his first question to me was, Jamie, is this really happening? And I appreciated this sort of incredulity because it did seem just utterly bizarre. It seemed like something out of an old Western film. How could this possibly be happening in 2014? And so the initial impetus for the book was thinking about how I could explain why this made sense to the people involved or why it was that this could be happening in 2014. I actually started working on the book two years later in 2016, during another armed standoff. And so that's the background driver. What I'm trying to do in this book is tell a story of the last 40 years of conservatives in the West who are struggling against changes in federal land management that impacts their lives in really profound ways. And over the course of those 40 years, try to understand how that challenge or that rebellion against federal authority moved from legislation and litigation to armed militias. Mm-hmm. And do that in a way also that could explain why by 2014 and 2016, these were no longer just fringe figures 
in the sense that you had mainstream conservatives, whether media personalities like Sean Hannity or Rand Paul, senator, expressing some sympathy with them. So the burden here is to explain how we moved in conservative opposition from legislative and litigious action to armed standoffs. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting is you give the, the understanding for within those particular families why they're upset. And it's pretty straightforward. They had an understanding. They thought they'd be able to live a certain lifestyle and run their business. And then as federal regulations change, they feel like that's unjust and, and detrimental to their, their families and their businesses. But you tell the story about how that gets picked up, as you just mentioned, by people like Hannity, by the broader conservative um, movement. And it's an interesting coalescence of all these, almost like a conservative intersectionality. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Where does that stand right now with President Trump and the state of conservative politics? Is the tensions in the West still a live issue on the table for the conservative movement, or has it gone into, into remission a little bit? That's actually, a, that's a harder question, but I'll give it a shot, which is one of the threads in this book is that there have been a series of what people call sagebrush rebellions. From 1979 to 1982, there was a, a period of challenge to federal authority. Another period often called the War for the West through the 1990s. And then what I'm calling the Patriot Rebellion, which began really with the inauguration of President Obama. And it's continued to the present. And one of the threads is it's shifted from that initial sagebrush rebellion in 1979, which was a regional struggle. It was just in the West. It was waged almost exclusively by Westerners mm -hmm. who had a material interest in federal lands and resources. So it was ranchers, county commissioners, loggers, miners. By the Patriot Rebellion today, this is a challenge to federal authority that didn't even begin in the West. This began with the Tea Party and the Patriot Movement. And I would say that a national movement among some conservatives who believe that the federal government had trampled the Constitution, left our fundamental political moorings, and had become a threat to the nation. So that's where we see more radical action, radical challenges to the federal government. But in the West, it's natural that challenge to federal authority would focus on federal lands because many of the people listening might not know that the federal government owns over half of all the land in 11 Western states in Alaska, 80% of Nevada, 63% of Utah. And so in those states where federal lands are really the most visible representation of the federal government's authority, mm -hmm. they become the focal point. Back to your original question, I would say that this rebellion, the Patriot Rebellion, in some ways quieted when it comes to federal land after President Trump was inaugurated. He gave a number of nods to this rebellion, both in terms of affirming some of the leaders, appointing some of them to the Department of the Interior, pardoning some of them for criminal convictions. And so I think on the federal land front, things have quieted, but that broader struggle against federal authority really hasn't calmed at all. And some of the leading figures, there's a gentleman, Ammon Bundy, who was a leader in two armed standoffs with federal agents. He lives in Idaho now, and he was recently arrested twice in the space of two days at the Idaho State Capitol, where he was protesting mask ordinances. <laughs> so what I would say is the rebellion against the perceived federal overreach has continued unabated, but the focus has shifted slightly away from land and resource questions to particularly now many forms of COVID-19 mitigation. So just to a different expression of sure. federal power. I'm guessing, though, if he's protesting mask ordinances, he's protesting the state regulations or city regulations, um, which, Correct. not to get into the constitutional weeds, but states have police powers, which is a right. whole different question than the federal government doing that. So 80% of Nevada, 
That is amazing. And one thing I highlight is your book has maps. And you can really see, it's one thing to hear that number, but then to see some of these different counties and see some of the different states and the extent to which the federal government um, owns that land. One of the things, one of the fun things in this project was uh, a number of student researchers that worked with me. And all of the maps in this book were made by Olivia Dendolk, who was international relations and environmental studies double major. And I myself don't have any skills in cartography and GIS. And there are a lot of students in my own department who do. But what really impressed me with Olivia's work is that she not only could make the maps in a technical sense, but she could grasp pretty quickly what I was trying to communicate. Yeah. And, and therefore, in that visual communication, really capture it. I think what the maps do several of them, is just communicate scale. It's what you're describing. Here in Michigan, I have to double check this, I think Michigan is 11 or 12% federally owned. Our federal lands are things like Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore, which is pretty much just supported by the public. National forests that are largely recreational. And so to us, federal lands just don't cause a lot of friction. We drive through them sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, whereas, yeah, if you're in Nevada and it turns out that the federal government is the dominant land use planner. And do they have a point? Not maybe the standoffs and occupying a sanctuary preserve. Obviously, those means are really problematic. But is there something to this concern that the federal government has too big of a footprint, particularly out in the West? The federal government that is controlled by senators and representatives from all 50 states is the one making really key decisions about your economy, about things as simple as transportation networks and roads. So the maps help, I think, communicate just what a difference, a different experience people in the West have of federal lands than people east of the Mississippi. I, I took your question to be, does the federal government own too much land? Yeah. And I would say, the simple answer is yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I would say even with the land the federal government owns, one of the things that you see, the federal government owns 640 million acres, which is about 28% of all surface land in the United States. So, sometimes bigger than several states. Yeah. Okay. One of the challenges is when you look at that land, it is it falls into different categories. And so you have national parks like Yosemite and Yellowstone that enjoy broad public support. You have national forests, which can be more controversial, fish and wildlife refuges. But the single largest land manager is the Bureau of Land Management. And it manages now about 243 million acres of land. And what makes their responsibilities complicated is the lands they manage weren't selected for permanent federal ownership by Congress as much as they were the lands left over mm. after national forests, national parks were created. I don't necessarily want to suggest that the federal government owns too many acres in a quantitative sense. But when you look at the public lands managed by BLM, one of their challenges is this land is not in large contiguous units. There are some of those, but this land is also scattered all over. There are areas of the West in Wyoming, Oregon, Nevada, where the Bureau of Land Management manages every other square mile of land in a perfect checkerboard. There are places where the federal government owns 40 acres in the middle of a private ranch. And so if pressed, I would say the federal government, whether or not it owns too many acres, I think the pattern of that ownership is deeply problematic. And it's deeply problematic both for states and private owners. It's also problematic for the federal government trying to manage this land that is so intertwined right. with other land ownership patterns.
press you a little bit on the connections between some of the militias and the fringe elements. Because in your book, you describe a lot of instances where it just seems like it's politics going on. It's different constituencies asking their representatives to push for this or that policy. And then there's the coercive violent standoffs and the guns and, uh, and things like that. So let's say I'm a conservative hearing this and I'm thinking, this, this professor at Calvin, he's tarring the entire conservative movement with, with the action of a few extremists. How do we tease out what's fringe and, and what's mainstream, whether it's with the conservative movements and thinking the federal government has overstepped its bounds. We could talk a little bit about the environmental movements, which sure. also has some fringe elements. I'm thinking about the summer, or recently an article came out saying that only 7% of the protests about the George Floyd killing were violent, so 93% were peaceful. So we shouldn't tag the whole thing as being violent. How do we think about movements more broadly with their fringier more troubling uh, elements. One of the things I I struggled with in this book, and I feel pretty good in the end about, about how I dealt with it, but it is how to write about a coalition. Mm-hmm. Because the coalition is both a group of diverse citizens and interest groups. So I think about conservatives libertarians, fiscal conservatives, religious conservatives, cultural conservatives, etc. I want to be really careful not to suggest that they're a homogenous group bound by a homogenous ideology, the same values. I certainly don't want to suggest that every conservative should be identified with the most extreme expressions of conservatism. So, for example, I consider white nationalists conservatives. But I certainly wouldn't ever say that all conservatives are white nationalists. So that is the struggle then is how to write about what holds them together without suggesting that is the entirety of the movement. And I think before starting this project, I would have been much more reticent to write about militias as mainstream conservatives. But the history that I trace is really showing how militias move from the fringe to mainstream. So if you go back to the 60s and 70s, militias in the United States or self-identified militias were predominantly white supremacists and tax evaders who were moving to Idaho, Montana to start an Aryan nation. This was not mainstream. This was the definition of countercultural, and they wanted nothing to do with society. And that's why when I write about the Sagebrush Rebellion of 79 to 1982, there's no militia involvement. We're doing something different. That really changes in the 1990s and becomes even more pronounced today, where the militia movement rebranded itself as a patriot movement. That what they were really doing was calling the country back to its true constitutional founding. Mm. They scrubbed some intentionally and consciously, others because they really didn't have racist ideology, but they scrubbed the movement of that kind of language. They said, no, we're really just about the real America, the original America. And they could point to a variety of things that they said were signs of the Constitution uh, being undermined. Mm -hmm. They were animated a lot by two really tragic incidents where federal law enforcement shot and killed people in uh, Ruby Ridge, Idaho, Waco, Texas. In 1993, President Clinton signed the Brady Act, which placed new gun restrictions in place, basically universal, well, uh, background checks. And what the militias did then is they came out and said, we're your last line of defense, protecting the Constitution. Not white people, not something fringe, but we're here about the Constitution. Here in Michigan, we had the Michigan militia, which was very active. But even in the 90s, the militias were somewhat fringe I would say they'd moved closer to the center, but they were fringe because the information they worked with 
is what you and I would consider pretty bizarre conspiracy theories. They were talking about the United Nations New World Order. They were talking about Agenda 21. They were talking about FEMA setting up internment camps. Planning to make one new world order. Exactly. The federal government was in league with the Russians. A lot of people still saw their worldview as paranoid, as not really based in fact. And I think the difference now is that much of that conspiracy thinking has itself become mainstream. Right. So whether it's elected officials, whether it is regular news commentators, you're hearing more and more today these kind of apocalyptic warnings about our gun rights being trampled, our freedoms removed. And I think that has animated more conservatives to see, if not militias themselves, but to see that kind of protest as potentially necessary. Mm -hmm. And that's combined with an insurrectionist interpretation of the Second Amendment, namely the idea that the founders wrote the Second Amendment not just so that people would have arms to serve in a militia, but the idea that right was protected primarily so that individuals could defend themselves against the government. And so I think by today, what you're seeing with all of the armed protests around state capitals right now over mask ordinances, armed protests, where waving a gun is is almost akin to waving an American flag and a certain form of patriotism. It's saying, we're going to defend the real America against the forces that are coming to get it. Right. I'm not suggesting by any means that all conservatives support the militia movement, but I would simply say that what I don't hear very often is a condemnation of that movement right. or a warning about how dangerous that is. Recently, here in Michigan, we had a self-proclaimed militia, the Wolverine Watchmen, plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And certainly many people have said, okay, that goes too far. That's not what we meant. And I believe that's true. That is still fringe. The actual kidnapping of a governor, kidnapping of a, yeah, that goes right. too far. I was reminded as I read about that plot, a reporter, Hal Herring, who, when he was reporting on one of these armed standoffs in the West, I want to read you a quote. He was writing from in the middle of this standoff, sitting with these different militia men. And he said, it was clear to me that somebody would die. Such certitude as these men and women possess demands blood sacrifice to justify itself. There were too many armed people in and circling the occupation with too many varying levels of sanity and too many varying motivations for being here. Guns, for as long as we have had them, have given undue impetus to arguments that lack merit or reason, given credence to delusional rants. And and I think what he captures well is many people can carry weapons peacefully in a protest, but we shouldn't necessarily be shocked that when that is celebrated and encouraged, that there will be outliers who, in fact, take that to an entirely different place. And I would say that my disappointment with with the conservative media is not warning of that danger and not being quick enough to condemn. That You could find a similar thing on the left with, we were talking earlier about Black Lives Matter movement and the fact that you have property destruction and violence. Right. It's a small percentage. But I, I do think there's a responsibility to say, even if, let's say, President Trump or a sitting politician isn't personally responsible for that kind of violence, right. there is a responsibility to call that out right. and say, we don't have space for that here. And so one of the indications of how mainstream the militias have gotten is it seems to be a hesitancy to really speak forcefully against. I think of it, David French would be an example of someone who did on the conservative side, but it wasn't everybody, and it certainly wasn't from the political leadership. And I was thinking after some of the rioting, there were some think pieces 
saying this is like the Tea Party, like the Boston Tea Party, not the more recent one, and this is a legitimate uh, way of, of doing politics by other means. The other thing that struck me in, in, in your book, where we see a sign of people voting for this approach, is the constitutional sheriff idea. Can you tell us what's a constitutional sheriff and why that might be a troubling sign of the mainstreaming of this sort of approach to figuring out political differences through our constitutional framework? Yeah. Constitutional sheriffs are some of the most interesting figures to me writing this book. And they're also some of the scariest because we are talking about elected sheriffs. We're talking about people with law enforcement responsibility. The constitutional sheriff movement actually comes out of the racist posse comitatus movement of the 70s. And basically, what comes out of that movement is the conviction that the sheriff, because that sheriff is the highest elected law enforcement officer, that law enforcement officer is the highest officer of the land in the county where he or she has been elected. This is right there in Article 9 of the Constitution. There was a particular sheriff, Richard Mack, who in the 90s, with backing from the NRA, won a lawsuit against the federal government when he was refusing to enforce background check on gun purchases. And what he drew from that, at least what he said he drew from that, is the conviction, not just that he had won in court, but that the entire idea of the autonomy of the county sheriff had been validated somehow by the courts. And so connected with that is the idea of nullification, that the county sheriff can nullify any federal law or state law that he or she doesn't think is constitutional. And so now what we have around the country is both an organization, the uh, Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officer Association, it is the network, but it's also just, I would say, an informal network of county sheriffs who have decided that they are not only the highest law enforcement officers, but they are also the highest interpreters mm. of the U.S. Constitution. So it's tied to this kind of popular constitutionalism that says, which is in the Constitution, that finally it's the people right. who will decide. And the constitutional sheriff says, I am the people yeah, who okay. will decide right. what the law means. So we've seen all around the country in Washington state, sheriffs pledging that they won't enforce any gun laws that the state passes. We have here in Michigan, after the Wolverine Watchman plot was revealed, we had a, a sheriff who said, no, these guys weren't necessarily wrong. They have the right to a citizen's arrest right. if, in fact, the governor is doing something illegal. And all around the country then, and there's a sheriff, Joe Arpaio, who basically ignored all federal law dealing with prohibiting racial profiling. And he ended up being found in contempt of court, was sentenced to prison, and President Trump pardoned him. But it's this tendency that concerns me because then it's not just people outside of government right. challenging authority. It is people with coercive power coercive police powers who are telling citizens that they no longer have to obey laws duly uh, passed by their state legislatures and by the federal government. So it's a curious movement and really troubling to me. Yeah. I'll ask two more questions about the book, and then we can perhaps talk about uh, some other things. Let's imagine that the president, whoever that might be, has an advisor who reads your book and is just loves the book, of course, as he or she should, and calls you up and, and wants to ask for your advice about a commission that would tackle these issues. And I imagine that we might say that the, the issue is too thorny and complex just to solve one fell swoop. But what, what are some things the federal government can do to make things better? Because one of the things I admire about the book is while you, you show that the problematic side of the rebellion, you also don't just give the government a, a clean slate. And you acknowledge some missteps, some serious missteps, and you also the environmental movement has some problems as well. So what can the federal government do or a couple of things that might be helpful in making progress on these issues? Let me answer that by not answering that initially okay. and say, uh, 
Because I, I do think one of the first things is to describe the nature of the problem that we have. Uh, public lands have always been contentious. These are fraught spaces, and this goes back, you know, 200 years. I think that one of the the problems we have is part of a larger crisis of political authority. We do have more and more citizens who are just disillusioned with, have given up on government in its capacity to do good work, to be responsible. And when I look at public lands, one of the really profound challenges we have are that the coalitions that are battling over public lands, which are now aligned with the Democratic and Republican parties, have become so powerful. They are backed by so much money that the average citizen does feel entirely helpless. Mm. The environmental movement really grew during the Reagan administration in terms of its financial backing, its organization, the number of lobbying offices it has. And I would say that the industrial groups, property rights groups, followed suit in a kind of political arms race. Mm -hmm. And what we're left with then is gridlock because all of that power basically ensures that we don't do constructive things. It's just mutual veto. And the people who live close to the public lands then experience the whiplash of moving from one administration to the next. Permanent change doesn't necessarily happen, but within those four-year cycles, they see significant uh, changes in who's managing the land and what their priorities really are. There's been a lot of work in collaborative land management, and particularly the idea of focusing on uh, a level, local or regional, at which people can gather, reason together, and compromise. But the challenge there is that those efforts are so often vetoed at the national level mm -hmm. that it's really hard to get people to come out and spend days and months and years in hard negotiations and achieve compromise when they don't believe their efforts will really bear fruit. So as far as what could be done, I, I myself am a little bit stuck on this. The perspective that I'm finding most helpful these days is actually the perspective of the federal land managers themselves. And the reason I say that is that uh, certainly your average forest ranger, Bureau of Land Management manager, they have political views, they have normative commitments, but these are people who have been struggling within that political whiplash, that back and forth, for a long period of time, who are my impression is genuinely trying to implement the laws, the legislation that yeah. Congress did pass with bipartisan support. And so I think what I take from them is that they are not involved in the kind of zero-sum game that the two sides are. Mm -hmm. They are people who really are looking for compromise, generally speaking. And I would tell the next president that he or she really should listen to those employees. Now, I'm not trying to hearken back to a day when the federal land managers were seen as the experts who had all the answers and we should just let them be autonomous and right. do their thing. But I actually think it's their perspective that we need right now. Okay. And that is different from just one, one jab at the, the Trump administration, which is the constant denigration of experts right. and the denigration of the administrative state and the bureaucrats. I understand the liabilities of bureaucracy, the limitations it has, but I think that has been a mistake in demonizing those employees when in fact, I think their perspective would be helpful to us right now. That makes sense. So you're a professor at a Christian university. One of the phrases that we hear a lot is the integration of faith and learning. It's a phrase that's trying to get at something, though, which is that our faith informs our teaching and our scholarship. And you published, this is an Oxford University Press book, which is really top shelf in terms of an academic platform. And you've also published in explicitly Christian outlets. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of your vocation 
as a Christian professor who's doing scholarship that can be appreciated on both the secular and the Christian realm? And, and how do you navigate those different, if, if they are different voices and different audiences? I would say one of the great privileges of teaching at Calvin is having the encouragement to integrate faith with my scholarship. And I value what I take to be maybe the signature habit of Calvin University, which is that we always ask, what bearing does my faith have on this discipline? And that may or may not mean that I come up with different conclusions. It's the habit of thinking to ask that question. What does being a Christian mean for this work? I would say that for me, not on principle, but largely because of my training and expertise, writing to a, a Christian audience specifically and writing, I would consider this book more guild scholarship. Sure. They are different projects. And again, it's not based on principle. It's that writing some of the essays that I've written on Christian faith and environmental stewardship are written much more like sermons. Mm. In other words, I'm writing to people who I believe share common faith, share convictions that we need to care for creation. We don't agree on the tools that we need to use, but we have that conviction. And I write then, I, I think maybe this might be too strong, but I think the voice that I have there is sometimes more one of exhortation. So there's a stronger sense of me being feeling free to say, this is how we should live. And whereas I think in the book that we're discussing, I have a different project, both because the voice here is more historical than just descriptive. But I think the other piece is that this writing is much more challenging because I'm trying to write both about and to people with whom I have fundamental disagreements. It requires a different effort. And I would say that there are a couple books that have been influential for me in thinking about kind of the voice of this type of text. One, and I'll, I'll get back to how this connects to Christian faith. Sure. Uh, one is, is a book by Liesl Carr Childers, whose training is an oral historian. And she wrote a book, The Size of the Risk, about multiple use management in the Great Basin. And what struck me about the book, and it really, it's beautifully written, and what struck me is that because she is an oral historian, even though she is shaping the narrative thread, her use of these interviews and these oral histories meant that different voices come through. Mm. So she's still controlling the text, but it does seem to allow people with whom she might disagree to have their own say inside the text, if that right. makes sense. The other one is a book, um, Between God and Green, Catherine Wilkinson. I think she's a geographer, but she wrote a book in 2013 about evangelicals and climate change. And as far as I can tell from the book, she is not herself an evangelical and finds certain aspects of her subject a little odd. <laughs> but she, she writes at the outset that her primary goal is what she described as critical empathy. And I, I love that phrase, and I would say that is really what I'm trying to do in this book. Yeah. It's critical. I am being critical of certain uh, groups, as well as trying to think critically about the issues. But I'm at least making an effort to ask myself, okay, why would this make sense to someone? Why might a rational person right. believe something that's so different from what I believe? And I actually do think that for me, that is grounded in Christian convictions about what it means to respect other people who are made in the image of God. In fact, one of the things that has troubled me so much about our political discourse is just the degree to which it grips with contempt. I find that to be unchristian. In a, at a pretty fundamental level. I would say also in this book, I'm writing about, and I'll say it was extremely difficult, writing about evangelicals in American politics because 
I'm now writing about people with whom I share a great deal of conviction and yet find our differences deeply painful. So writing both about evangelicals and Mormons in American politics. And there I would say it was an even greater challenge, I think, because to write about almost about family with whom I have such disagreements, it, it was at times really tiring. Yeah, that makes sense. And maybe that's an echo of why this political season feels exhausting. The people with whom we're closer, the differences cost sure. more. Let's talk about that a little bit. If you want. We have a few minutes left. Sure. One of the hopes that I have for Henry Conversations is it can be a place where people can talk in a way that is healthy, but sometimes disagree and, and, and agree. I think we've primarily been on the same page here, although I'm sure we have some things that we would differ on. And I did appreciate that. So critical empathy, I think, is a great phrase. I agree. and Something I would hope to capture myself. And Paul Henry, after whom the Henry Institute is named, was an evangelical, really came from evangelical royalty family, being the son of Carl F.H. Henry, and yet taught here at Calvin and, and was committed to Reformed commitments. What is your sense of the future of evangelicals in politics? They tend to be more conservative than not. Conservative politics, is there any reason for hope that we can recapture some sense of disagreeing agreeably and a more positive, constructive approach to politics. Things do feel very polarized. Things do feel very bitter. You get more likes and shares for slamming somebody than you do for a conversation that's harder to do but can be more constructive. Do you see any hope for the next season of politics and our culture being any better on those things? As a Christian, I always have hope. And hope is sometimes that which is not seen. And, yeah. and I would say at the moment, I don't see an obvious path, but I am hopeful. And I'm reminded uh, a friend who years ago wrote a book that the working title, which he later changed, the working title was There's Nothing Wrong with Evangelicalism that Jesus Can't Fix. <laughs> and um, think, I'm sorry that got changed. It yeah. should have, that would have been a great title. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of things historically to note. One is when you and I were growing up, I think at least if you were a Christian and an evangelical, there was still a, a meaningful distinction between evangelicals and fundamentalists. I should say we're roughly the same age, I think, uh, mid to late 40s, yeah. thereabouts. Yeah. So growing up in the 70s and 80s. Yes. Yeah. I don't understand why. I don't know the history of this, but uh, I no longer hear that distinction. I hear evangelical as the sort of blanket term that encompasses pretty much every sort of, here's another problematic term, conservative Protestant. Sure. It's not, it's really a, a term that has lost a lot of its value. So one, I would want to know what is, what does the term mean yeah. right, and how is it changing? To me, the, the single greatest obstacle to overcome for a better evangelical engagement in politics is that we do return to to Jesus and to Christian faith, and that we confront directly and critically what I see as an idolatrous civil religion. I'm not suggesting all evangelicals hold this, but as I read the language in here, in fact, at the end of the book, when I quote people like Robert Jeffress, Baptist pastor from Texas, right. Terry Falwell Jr., Michelle Bachman, who describes Trump as the most biblical and godly president America has ever had. And the only way I can make sense of that is there has been uh, a mistaken identity, or at least a conflation of God and nation. It's not unlike when Vice President Pence recently, um, I think, somehow switched the terms old glory and Jesus. Set our eyes upon old glory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I think... It, it's not as though someone sets out and says, I'm now going to worship the nation. But I think what has infused a cultural Christianity is the idea that America is a chosen nation, city on a hill, light to the nations, and that its greatness is grounded in a godly people being faithful to that original founding. One of the things that I see, at least in Donald Trump, because I've struggled to understand why evangelicals overwhelmingly support Donald Trump, 
In the 90s, they were critical of Clinton for not having enough moral integrity. There's been a, a significant shift. And the only way I can make sense of it is that what Trump is promising to do is defend the nation, God's nation, and crush its enemies. Yeah. A president of strength and conviction who will decimate anyone who challenges American exceptionalism. And how that has become infused in a kind of Christian thinking about politics, I, I don't know the whole history, but that to me is a substantial obstacle because that's what justifies the kind of contemptuous language, the kind of, to me, appalling policies, whether sure. at the border or elsewhere, because the important things for Christians, for many evangelicals, is defense of the nation. I think Donald Trump uh, Jr., who said that his dad had saved God and saved Christianity. Let me push back a little bit. How many evangelicals are buying into those lines from Jeffries and from Paul Jr. and Bachman? And how many of them are just that much concerned about the alternative that, that they would be voting for? Uh, so Hillary Clinton in 2016. And so their votes are more against. There are a lot of hold-your-nose evangelical voters. We'd love to have some of them Trump, but feel that the other side would be so disastrous. And just as we have colleagues who aren't pro-choice, but will vote for Democratic candidates and say, I'm not voting for that aspect of their uh, platform, I think there will be a lot more evangelicals say, I, of course, agree that the coarseness is bad, but because of the alternative, they feel like they have to, to uh, side with Trump. And I guess it'll be interesting to see post-Trump, whether now, whether in November or four years from now, which side is the majority moving forward. I think the civil religion thing is fascinating and, and very explanatory, and uh, it, it's a very interesting subgenre of political theory and political thought. And yeah. there's a slew of, of literature that came out after Robert Bellow's piece in 1967. The term goes back to Rousseau, interestingly. And, and out of that um, literature, one variation of civil religion that came out was described as prophetic civil religion. And Lincoln was seen as the exemplar of this approach, which held up the country as something good, but yet loved it enough to be critical of it. Mm -hmm. might even say critical empathy. And that, that kind of civil religion can be a healthy thing. But there is this priestly civil religion idea, which is that the, the president presides over our religious dogmas and rituals, and we have holy days like the 4th of July, and we have saints, depending on which political party we're in. So I, I agree that that is a problem, although not only for evangelicals, I think there are secular versions of that as well. It could go a long way towards explaining the problem and then perhaps helping us think about what a solution might be or small steps toward a solution. I'd want to pause now and just thank you. I enjoyed reading this book and enjoyed talking about these other things as well. So thank you for coming on and having what I hope has been a constructive, friendly conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it has been, and I look forward to talking further. Thank you so much for joining us today for this Henry Conversation. My guest has been Jamie Skillen of Calvin University. We talked about his book, This Land is My Land, Rebellion in the West. We met on October 19th, 2020, in the Agree Room in the Communication Department Suite in the DeVos Communication Center on the campus of Calvin University. I'm your host, Micah Watson, and I hope you enjoyed this first Henry Conversation, and I invite you to join us again in the not-too-distant future.